Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKinty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the members' forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKinty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on April 27th, 2022. Today, I'm happy to welcome Derek Wills onto the program. He's the author of the recently published book, The Liberty Solution, which includes a foreword by renowned libertarian academic Dr. Walter Block. In it, Derek provides an excellent synopsis of the foundations of libertarian theory based on the concept of natural law, which posits all individuals are granted inalienable human rights that cannot morally be infringed upon by criminals and governments alike. By referencing the foundational philosophy of 17th century British philosopher John Locke, Derek painstakingly develops a modern libertarian theory from the ground up. His work details how the concept of natural law applies to a variety of issues, including currency creation, the proper dissemination of justice, immigration in a free society, and even the controversial topic of abortion from the perspective of its rigorous application. Ultimately, Derek provides a rationally consistent argument for the elimination of the state in favor of natural systems of economy and self-protection based on the principle that individual freedom of choice results in the greatest collective good. Separated into two parts, the book first makes a case against the use of government, citing the historical record for a plethora of examples that provide ample evidence of the misuse of state power to the detriment of the common person. These include taxation, which reduces home ownership to a form of modern-day serfdom, as well as the presence of crony capitalism, which allows well-connected individuals to profit excessively from large government contracts and the creation of laws designed to prevent competition from those unable to access sources of government largesse. Part 2 of the book provides solutions to common problems typically associated with state responsibility, and describes the many ways a free society could provide necessary goods and services in the absence of state power. This includes a chapter dedicated to the notion of tolerance, as a free society allows the existence of a variety of lifestyle choices, so long as those lifestyles adhere to the fundamental principles of non-aggression at the heart of the concept of natural law. This conversation continues a series of interviews from The Shift focusing on libertarian ideas in general and the concept of natural law in particular. The modern political world has become so polarized due to overwhelming adherence to a dialectic philosophy that posits that political change must come from a violent synthesis of a historical thesis in conflict with a rising antithesis. The concept of natural law provides an alternative theory that includes a path forward, harmonizing human cultural evolution with the state of nature, and emphasizing symbiosis rather than continual conflict. 
Enjoy this conversation with author Derek Wills, where we discuss how humanity can accomplish just such a transformation. You can find a copy of the book by searching for The Liberty Solution on Amazon. As always, please like, subscribe, and share this interview to your favorite social media platform. We rely on listeners like you for the distribution of this alternative information. You can find hours of free content, sign up for the newsletter, or subscribe for feature-length versions of each episode by going to www.theshiftnow.com. If you want to become part of the conversation, search for Doug McKenty on Facebook or at McKenty on Twitter. I want to thank author Derek Wills for agreeing to this interview, and thank you for helping to make the shift. Hey everyone, and welcome to the 119th episode of The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. I am joined today by the author of The Liberty Solution, Derek Wills. Uh, as many of you know, I've been uh, having more and more libertarians on the show. For such a long time, I was trying to find compromise between uh, the left and the right in the left-right paradigm to figure out how we could work together, but um, ultimately, I've just had to come to the conclusion that I really do feel like... Uh, Living in a free society is uh, kind of where things have to start, <laughs> and uh, if we can't agree on that, um, then you know what are we doing? What are we doing talking about politics? So I'm happy to have Derek on the show, uh, and we'll get into some of these uh, foundational philosophies about uh, libertarianism, where it comes from, how it can work, why we believe in it. So Derek, welcome to the program. Why don't you just, uh, why don't you tell people uh, what motivated you to write this book and what, uh, just a little bit about the process. I know that you, uh, you basically wrote that you started as a minarchist and essentially by the end of it, you were, you were full on done with the idea of the state altogether. So uh, why don't you describe that process? Well, uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a very interesting journey. Uh, to say the least. So to to start with what prompted me to write this book, um, I was a I was a podcast host for a uh, grassroots gun rights organization in Texas called Lone Star Gun Rights at the time, um, and um, you know we were doing heavy lobbying in the state legislature to get uh, constitutional carry, permitless carry, whatever you want to call it, uh, and um, you know. It, Everything that comes with being a gun rights advocate, um, you know, you, you're gonna have to address anytime tragedy happens. Um, and you know, they, you know, we get a lot of tragedy highlighted in this country, uh, particularly whenever um, Republicans are in control, but uh, also whenever Democrats are in control too. Um, so this was following the. Uh, tragedy at Santa Fe High School. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a gun rights rally that was organized uh, to, to basically say, you know, uh, there's no law that would have prevented this from happening. Uh, you're only, you know, you're, you're only punishing the law abiding, so to speak. I was invited to speak at this rally. So um, I, uh, I wrote a speech, I gave the speech. And uh, I received a lot of good feedback on this on the speech itself, and one of them was uh, that I needed to write write a book on liberty because one of the central themes of my speech was not just "Don't come take our guns." It was also rooted in the whole you know natural law theory behind why gun rights are natural rights. And so I kind of took that to heart. I was like, you know what? Um, 
I'm writing op-eds, I'm writing blog posts, I'm writing social media posts for, uh, for LSGR, I'm hosting a podcast. A book actually sounds like a good idea, a good next step, if you will. So uh, I took that to heart, and the very next day I started uh, typing out on my computer uh, how, you know, uh, the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, it was, it was interesting because at the time I, I had already started down this trail, you know, I, I had started off early in my life as a pretty hardcore establishment Republican type. Um, yeah, let's go get some WMDs in Iraq. Uh, you know, the war hawk type. Um, right. And you were, you were in the military for a while. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I joined the military right out of high school because it's my patriotic duty to serve my country, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I joined the Navy, uh, spent six years in the Navy, and during my time in the Navy was really whenever the shift started to happen. Um, and I, I do talk about it a little bit in, in the book, but uh, really it was just like, wait a second, I'm supposed to be protecting American freedom here. And I'm in the middle of the North Arabian Gulf guarding a an Iraqi oil platform. What does this have to do with anything? So right. that's when it really started to like started to move me. So I, I became more of a constitutional conservative. I started distancing myself from the Republican Party uh, using that moniker of constitutional conservative. And I started calling out, you know, rhinos. Uh, well, it didn't take it didn't take too much longer for me to realize that you know all of the rhinos, quote unquote, that I'm calling out are people in the Republican Party, like most of the people in the Republican Party. So if 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 this is how Republicans act, then they're not Republicans in name only; they're Republicans. That's what that's what Republicans do. Right. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I I started really getting kind of more distant uh, and and really thinking about the philosophy of, of the of the uh, Republican Party. Like, and then I started thinking about like the war on drugs. And it's like, this is stupid. Why are we throwing people in a cage and treating them like criminals for, you know, I mean, natural rights, right? Well, if I don't have the right to my own body, um, you know, this makes no sense. So I became far more libertarian as, as time went on. Um, and, you know, it, it was kind of a, a, a gentle shift. It was cons- constitutional conservative, then conservatarian, and then libertarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I would say this is probably around 2016 time frame is when I really started uh, going hardcore with the Libertarian Party. Uh, 2016 was the first election that I actually voted Libertarian um, and, you know, was actively trying to convince my 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 closest friends stop supporting Republicans. Um, and so I, you know, this is all about the same time that I'm starting to write the book. Uh, and by the time I really started writing it, I was at, God, the the, the state just needs to stop doing 99% of things. And there were just a couple of things that I could not really get past, uh, things that I just could not really I couldn't find a, a solution that would work outside of state control. Uh, for example, like police courts, you know, fire, mm-hmm. 
things like that. I'm like, how do we do this without the state? And um, what, what was really kind of interesting is, you know, as a, this shift is happening, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to call myself, I'm three degrees away from an anarchist. I just can't get those, those, that last little gap filled. Right. And then I discover Murray Rothbard. <laughs> and, um, you know, I had, I had had Rothbard's For a New Liberty on my reading list uh, for a while. It was one of the things that I wanted to research for my book specifically. Um, and it had a lot to do with the synopsis. I had never heard of Murray Rothbard before this. Um, so I, I kind of had it in the back of my mind. And then finally I pulled the trigger on it. I'm about halfway through writing my book. And I finally get a hold of For a New Liberty and I read it. And my life changed. Yeah. My whole philo- everything that I had been like having sh- trouble getting from point A to point B, I was there. And so I actually had to scrap about half the book that right. I had already written <laughs> uh, because it was written from like from a statist perspective, you know, like a, a minarchist statist perspective. And sure. I, I had actually had this idea originally that, you know, the last chapter of my book, I'm going to rewrite the Constitution the way that it should have been written. Well, uh, well, that didn't happen because it, it, it shouldn't exist. But, you know, <laughs> so that's kind of how the journey happened. Uh, and honestly, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was such an eye-opening experience. And yeah. it's something that I really try to tack on to the reader as, as kind of a side project. You know, you might not agree with this right now, but just keep your, op- your mind open and just start thinking about things below the surface argument. And, uh, you know, make sure that you're maintaining that type of intellectual honesty. And, you know, that's how I got to where I was. And, I, you know, if the reader or listener to the audiobook um, does the same thing, they will, they could very likely end up in the same conclusion that I did. Yeah, sure. It, it was Murray Rothbard that did it for me, too. I was in exactly the same place. I mean, I, I started... My parents were Republican. It was kind of the, the perspective that I had. I became libertarian pretty early on in my own uh, in my own evolution. Uh, and then uh, when I was introduced to, to Murray Rothbard, it was he was the one, and it was about the courts. Exactly what you're talking about. It was the um, I read an excerpt actually from one of his books, and it was about having a free market court system. And I was like, why not? You know, why do we need to have a central authority when we could all choose? you know, to be represented by a, by a certain, the sort of system of law that we prefer and then have them arbitrate it out and have it work out that way. And uh, it, it just kind of radically shifted my perspective. What's been interesting is since that time, like these days, I would actually consider myself a pretty left libertarian or a, like a leftist anarchist, I guess, except I, I mean, I hold on to the free market principles and I don't see, like I said at the very beginning, uh, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get beyond this left-right paradigm because this is what's really, I think it prevents us all from from actually kind of uniting against the common enemy, which is this centralization of power in the hands of the state that I perceive, I think you probably do as well, uh, is to the benefit of the few people that have access to the halls of power, you know? <laughs> and so we should all kind of like, we should all get together, right? <laughs> and, and fix this problem. But instead, we're always arguing amongst ourselves. So I've spent a lot of time trying to um, 
trying to understand kind of that left-wing point of view. And I've become very, I mean, socially very liberal. I, and I think actually from reading your book, it seems like you're that way too. You're certainly, you know, not homophobic in any way, or, I mean, you're completely open, open-minded to all kinds of, I mean, people have a natural right, as you say in the book to live how they choose. And, and I've come to the realization that, uh, a lot of these people on the left, like I'm not incompatible with their lifestyle. It's when they want to impose their belief system that I have a problem with it. And uh, I, you know, I still ended up at the end of the day, like I said, now I'm, I'm interviewing a lot more libertarians to say, you know, we can have these libertarian principles and we can live in a free society and you can still live in a commune. I mean, it's not the libertarians that are you know, arguing with the communists, telling them they're not allowed to live in a commune. You know, it's the right. communists that are saying you're not allowed to have private property. It's like, well, what if? How are you going to stop people from having private property? You know, I mean, some people well, are going to do it. State non-existent state <laughs> is going to stop me, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. You, you know, you bring up a very interesting point, and that is the left-right p- paradigm. You know, yeah. the. the the dichotomy of left versus right. And, you know, you got the political compass that has the four quadrants, authoritarian, libertarian, economic left, economic right. Uh, I hate all of those models. There is one model that I have been, I I have fell in love with it. Um, I, I, you know, if, if I had one regret of my book, I would have incorporated this in some way. Uh, Some Redditor created this. There's no like, test for it there should be it, it's mm-hmm. great but it it uh illustrates uh philosophical ideology not in a square with quadrants not in a left right linear type but in a triangle and at the apex of each uh, uh at the apex of the triangle of each point you have one is anarchist one is communist, and the other is like uh, absolutist, so like your monarchs, your czars, things like that. Mm-hmm. And th- I love this model because it really highlights how how it, it, it really is. Like the more you look at this model, the more the the more it tells because you know, like just take the individualist, the anarchist, for example. He looks at the communist. And the uh, monarch, the same way. They're both evil. They're both statist. They are both out to either um, force a a structure, a hierarchical structure, or force equality, so to speak. The individualist stands alone. If you're at the communist side of that, you can see how both the anarchist and the czarist would be your enemy. Because you have this one that is going to... You know, you have your nobles, your your princes and dukes, and your your hierarchical structure. That's an enemy to equality, yeah. and as is the individual, because he wants to be he wants to be as greedy as he wants. And so it, you look and you're like, both of these are opposite to me. Yeah. And if you look at the monarchist, same thing. The individual is is an enemy of me of of mine because. He wants to be able to live outside of this controlled structure that we have. And the communist certainly is also another enemy of mine because he wants to uh, do away with my hierarchical power and establish equality for everybody. So I I love this model. I'll send it to you after the show. Yeah, uh, sure. (laughs) 
it, it, it's one of the greatest things I've ever, I've ever seen. And the more I look at it, the more I love it. Yeah. Cool. I mean, I remember, you know, again, back when I, I was just kind of waking up to politics and thinking about it myself and becoming more and more libertarian, it was the far right, you know, so there I am theoretically identifying like my parents as a Republican, as a kid, basically. And, uh, and I'm on the right of the left, right paradigm. And that's, that was the world. That was how I learned to think about politics. And then I become a libertarian. So theoretically I'm, I'm farther right, but then I get told (laughs) that fascists are also on the farther, you know, on the far right. And I'm like, but I'm not a fascist, right? I'm a libertarian. (laughs) And then the whole model breaks down and it does break down. Like it doesn't make sense. I mean, people need to kind of like, really question why our politics uses this left-right paradigm when things don't, you know, you can't fit a a square peg in a round hole, right? I mean, it doesn't fit. Um, These political philosophies are are varied and different, and they need to be, we need to create a model that, that makes a lot more sense. And I've actually, in fact, on my blog, I've been talking about populism as a top-down paradigm, and I'm analyzing politics from a power perspective, which it sounds like your triangle actually kind of touches on this as well. But just, you know, you got to realize that like when there's the centralization of power, then some people are going to, you know, they're going to wield power over others. And that's how we need to analyze politics, not, not about, uh, you know, different, these different political philosophies, because what difference does it make when we're arguing left, right, paradigm here and then there's a group of people that are just you know in in (laughs) holding the reins of government and doing whatever they want to all the rest of us and we're not even talking about the right issues because we're off over here arguing about you know (laughs) (laughs) arguing about about the most superfluous things that exactly don't matter exactly (laughs) yeah I, i actually um have come to realize too i just what's been bothering me so much since the whole trump era and this whole progressive push the censorship push the hate speech push and all of this that's going on and like why has it bothered me so much and i realized that the identity politics also uh it doesn't it doesn't it it wants to say that political power is held by various groups that you identify with be it your skin color or your sexual identity or whatever and you know again i'm like over here saying we need to start analyzing politics based on power and who has the power and who doesn't have the power, you know, who <laughs> absolutely. And until we can get into that frame of mind, we're not going to change anything. We can argue identity politics until the cows come home and right. the system's not going to change. The, the rich guys, you know, are happy enough to let us argue about this stuff all day long. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's a perfect <laughs> distraction, you yeah. know, uh, you know, it, it's, entertaining and seems just important enough to keep everybody occupied but yeah ultimately it's like we're not talking about anything real here it's all arbitrary and it's being used to justify a a lot of the censorship i mean you know shows like mine often we find ourselves shadow banned on social media (laughs) because (laughs) never had that happen before right (laughs) because when you talk about you know truth to power it turns out they don't really like it that much (laughs) yeah I guess it's a sign that you're on the right track. Yeah, I would agree. (laughs) 
Well, let's get into uh, this concept of natural law. For one thing, I really appreciate about the book that you quote John Locke quite a bit. So clearly, you know, you're going back to the source on this. Um, why don't you, yeah, talk about your relationship with John Locke? Did you did you really go? It seems like you did a pretty deep dive into his philosophy. You must have read quite a bit. Um, so, you know, what made you decide to take it to that level? Actually, because not a lot of people really do. They don't, they, you know, they're not real excited about jumping into to 17th century political <laughs> philosophy, you know, <laughs> and, and they're correct in, in how uh, brutal that can be. Right. Golly. <laughs> Whenever you get into Hobbes, it's even worse. Uh, yeah. Th- yeah. Because it's, it's just the, the dialect is just so it's, foreign to us. I actually uh, know, you know, I, I've noticed that the hundred years, I mean, maybe it's because I've read more Locke. I'm kind of used to that language, that, that time period, but Hobbes is definitely a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, you know, in my constitutional conservative ideology days, um, you know, like a good constitutional conservative, I was really big on the founding fathers mm-hmm. um, and, you know, almost to a fault. Um, now, I I also am a huge history fan. I love reading history because you you learn so much. And and I'm not talking about the grade school history that you take. Uh, You know, I'm a fan of reading original source material as much as possible. Um, You know, and one of my, even now, despite his faults and despite, um, you know, some of the evils that he did uh, from a philosophical standpoint, I would say I still admire Thomas Jefferson to, to a great degree. Um, I'm not going to apologize for him. I'm not going to say that he's a saint or anything. Um, It's interesting, actually, to me, if I can interrupt for a second, this is an interesting topic to me that people will toss away the man's philosophy because he was a hypocrite. I mean, you know, point, point, point me to the person who's not a hypocrite in this world. I mean, we all, none of us are perfect. And so, you know, to, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fallacy to throw away, his ideas because he didn't always live up to those ideas. And I think right. that's really unfortunate because I, like you uh, certainly appreciate the writings that he put out there and, and the ideas that he had around the founding of, of the United States. So, yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. Um, you know, again, I, 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 I don't admire the man himself, but I do admire his philosophies and what he actually did do and argue for. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of the admiration that I had for him, even whenever I was a constitutional conservative and ignoring his hypocrisies, um, you know, I wanted to know who helped shape him. And so that drove me to John Locke. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what really got me on the, uh, you know, natural right philosophy, uh, the natural right theory, uh, even back then. I believe firmly in, in natural rights. Um, and despite the fact that I still believe in God now, uh, I don't call them God given rights anymore at the time I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, to be more inclusive to everyone, because it really doesn't matter if somebody believes in God or not, these rights still belong to you. And so I want to make sure that I'm not isolating people and making them feel put off off by the philosophy that still applies to them regardless of their beliefs. So yeah. I'm big on calling it natural rights now. Um, 
but yeah, that's kind of what drove me to Locke. And I have read um, the two treatise, treatises of government um, probably two or three times over the years uh, just because I wanted to, to understand. And, you know, it, it is a very boring read. Oh, my God. Right. It, it really is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but I'm also kind of a glutton for punishment. You know, uh, you know, I'm reading I'm reading letters uh, that Jefferson wrote that nobody ever talks about because they're never, you know, it's not historically significant in any way. Uh, I still have a book on my bookshelf that's just filled with Jefferson's writings. Yeah. Um, just because it helped me understand where he was philosophically. Um, so you, you, it's actually, it just to again, interrupt, but it's so important and so impressive that you've taken that. I, uh, I mean, I, I studied uh, political philosophy at Trinity actually in San Antonio, you're in, you're in Fort Worth. So you yeah. might, but, um, and, and I focused on, I, I actually was really lucky to have a, an excellent history teacher that required us to read the primary sources and then would have us write. We wrote quite a bit um, from this perspective of, of how to view history, how to interpret history um, instead of just, you know, instead of just believing somebody's historical uh perspective reading their book and, and believing it, you know, we'd read different perspectives on, on the same historical event. And then we do a comparison and contrast, which is really how you have to approach it. But my yeah. point being is that going all the way back to those primary sources uh, is, is important. And it's unfortunate that, you know, I think you and I can both agree that the, the education system here in the United States is at a place where a lot of people don't make that because it is challenging. They don't make that leap. They don't do that extra work. Um, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, it's really worth it. And actually, you know, it's necessary if we want to have real political conversations, if we want to understand where our political beliefs come from, why we think the way we do, you know, um, having an understanding of those, of that primary source material, uh, and taking the time to be able to get through even some of the harder language. It's not always yeah. the funnest thing to do, but, um, yeah. when you do, it's, it's well worth the effort. So I appreciate that you did that. And, and then, uh, you know, you quoted in quite a bit in the book. So there's a lot of, of that primary material in the book as well. Well, I, I appreciate the compliments very, very much. Um, and you know, I, I, I think the thought experiment about delving in and, and, um, you, you, like you said, finding out why you, why you believe your beliefs, um, is, is so incredibly important. Um, there are, there are, you know, areas where I even say, this is what Locke said, and this is why I disagree. Mm -hmm. Uh, things like that are, are important. You don't have to be a parrot for the people that you like. You can still have admiration and respect, uh, for anybody, um, if, for whatever reason, you know, for, for their, for their uh, philosophical beliefs, their political beliefs, whatever. But that doesn't mean you have to agree with them 100%. And it doesn't make them your enemy either. You know, I appreciate what John Locke has brought to the Enlightenment era of, you know, understanding political philosophy. But I don't agree with him on everything. Mm -hmm. I think he's flat out wrong on things because John Locke was, was a statist. 
I'm an anarchist. Well, right. I yeah. can't argue. I can't, the, the I, I social, can't agree with them. The social contract is something like, I didn't sign that contract, John, yeah. so I'm sorry. I, yeah, <laughs> I'll pass yeah, on uh, that can, one. <laughs> can you at least show me the power of attorney I signed? Uh, yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, that, I'll, I'll tell you that social contract, that that is one thing that needs to be abolished from all philosophies that is one of the stupidest things it is funny i remember learning about it and being like but i didn't sign that like why would anyone believe that (laughs) you know and it's that's it's a magic trick (laughs) yeah some guys wrote wrote a contract 200 years ago and i'm supposed to be bound by that but it's not like (laughs) that's not a contract that i agreed to at all i'm not a i wasn't a part of that at all how are you doing that what kind of a leap is that yeah Yeah, and you know what's interesting? I was having a discussion with um, with a, with a friend of mine, uh, you know, and we talk of philosophy a lot. Uh, but he highlighted something I had never thought about, and it's so obvious. But the majority of the laws that we are required to follow right now were written by people who are dead for people who are dead. Right. <laughs> And whenever he said that, it kind of blew my mind. Like, oh my god, yeah. How, how is this still supposed to apply to me? Uh, and, and you know, it, it's just it's 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 baffling, and it, it, I just don't understand how people can, with a straight face. And I used to be one of these people, and I still don't understand it. Right? How they can look at you with a straight face and be like, "This is what's required to live in a civilized society," and you know, it's for the greater good. Well. Sorry, but your greater good is not the same as mine. My greater good is what's best for me, not for I, I don't even know you. I mean, yeah, uh, my greater good is what's best for me. And so what's best for me is actually what's best for everyone, because what's best for me is what's best for the individual. And the individual is the single most uh, single biggest minority that there can be. Right. You know, it's funny because I've gotten in these, you know, you hear of this kind of leftist perspective that um, libertarians are, are selfish and individualist and they don't care about the community. And my response is always the best thing for the community is to have respect for individual autonomy. I mean, if you, if Absolutely. your community doesn't respect individual autonomy, then it's going to be a nightmare. It's not going to be a healthy community. So, you know, let's start there and then, and then move from there. Um, but it's just been so, so wild to me, especially, it just seems like things have gotten so bad in the last five years uh, with the, with the Trump era and this rise in this concept of hate speech. And a lot of the mainstream media has been fomenting a lot of this. I'm not even sure that most of it is real, but, um, a lot of the people on the left are, you know, really, uh, they've become very intolerant towards people who believe in individual rights or, you know, even using the word liberty or tyranny are almost yeah. like, you know, are you a domestic terrorist? You get, you know, you get linked yeah. into these like right wing groups or something. And it's like, no, that's, I mean, that's not what I'm talking about at all. And I don't know how we got here necessarily. Um, but this notion that it's selfish to want to be a free individual who's allowed to make my own choices. Uh, It's just so absurd, but here's where we're at now in our political conversation. I mean, we are individuals. If we don't have autonomy, then we're slaves, you know? And so because I oppose slavery, that means I recognize that, 
you, you know, the individual has certain rights. Um, that yep. doesn't mean that a free individual shouldn't also be altruistic and engage in their community in a positive way. You write about charity, for example, in the book. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in a free society that we can help one another and we can be yeah. altruists. So it's not all, um, it's just so funny to me now that the, and it's not, it's actually not funny. It's frightening that the idea of individualism or individual liberty is now being conflated with selfishness. It's yeah. Crazy. And it's, it's, it's everywhere. And it really doesn't matter if you're talking to a leftist or a Trump supporter, um, you know, it, they will find something to outright condemn you for that is rooted in liberty. You know, the left will chastise you for supporting, you know, somebody like Elon Musk using his, you know, using his own property to purchase Twitter, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and then you'll have the right chastise you for, you know, how dare you say that, uh, you know, trans people should have full body autonomy for themselves. And it's like, Right. <laughs> I, I, it's it, it's it's just it's like you either believe that the individual has the right to do what they want as long as they don't harm another person or yeah. you don't. Uh and it it's it's frustrating but it's also it's also very sad because we've we've reached a point in our well in our in society where we can't even we can't even engage these these topics civilly anymore. Social media has kind of obliterated that. Right. It's kind of this blessing and a cancer at the same time, where you know you you have people that um, that they they hide behind their keyboard and they will say some of the most awful things to you yeah. and draw conclusions about you and um, and and outright just spew hatred towards you. For daring to have a challenging opinion, but what's really sad about it is if you engage with these people, they are literally all saying the exact same thing, almost verbatim, in whatever topic you're talking about. And these people don't know each other, and it's incredibly telling. And it's it's just it's it's very sad. I I, I don't know what the solution is to cracking that code. Right, I know it's it's frustrating, and what's even more frustrating, I just um. I don't know. I'd like to see some kind of there uh, some kind of political awakening where we can actually start to feel like we can get somewhere because the arguing back and forth, like you say on social media, it's not really the place for these deeper philosophical conversations. A lot of short snippets back and forth, people hiding behind their keyboards so they say terrible things that they probably would never say to your face. Right. Uh, and and it's not like you know we the people are moving forward. Um, against what is becoming more and more the, this, this overbearing, powerful state that is encroaching in every aspect of our lives in every way, and it's getting worse and worse uh, instead of better and better. Um, yeah. it, it's frustrating, actually. It's, you know, it's challenging to live in this world, I think, when you do become, I mean, if you're identifying as an anarchist, you're clearly outside of the, the Overton <laughs> window, right? So yeah. <laughs> there's not a lot of people that are jumping on board with these ideas i've been lately just trying to advocate for decentralizing power like come on yeah. can we just like let's cut the federal government in half and move the power to the state and then move the state power to the city you yeah. know in the county governments where we can actually talk to our neighbors and have political conversations and have all these 
you know, conver- these left-right paradigm arguments with our neighbors at, at our county government instead of, yeah. you know, ha- letting the thinking that the federal government has to make choices for everybody in the country. It's just, is yeah. it, can, it, can it be that simple? You know, can we just agree to like not let this organization control everything about all of our lives all over the country and decentralize it? Just the old, the founding father's idea of federalism, uh, you know, yeah. decentralized power to the hands of the city. S- simple concept. Can we agree on that? And then we could move forward. Yeah, unfortunately, people have been so conditioned, particularly in this day and age, to default everything to the federal level yeah. that you're going to be hard-pressed to find anybody to agree on that. Um, you know, you, you might find them to agree on certain aspects of that. Like, you'll get you'll get uh, um, you'll probably get people on the right to agree that, yeah, gun law should be handled at the state and local level. Uh, but, you know, if you if you want to talk about uh you know abortion of oh, federal ban full on federal ban that's what they right mean. uh and it's the same thing for the left you know pick your poison you can you can find things that they would support the federal government no longer being involved in uh but the federal government must be involved in these other uh, other issues as well uh and you know again yeah uh, it's frustrating cuz it's like decentralization would benefit everyone. Yeah, I think it would be, I mean, as I, even as I was reading your book, but through my own process, I think it would just blow people's minds. I mean, you talk about the federal reserve and just the, well, the, you know, 96.4% of the value of the dollar has been eroded away. One of the things that I didn't know was how stable the dollar was for the hundred years prior to that. So that was really interesting information that you have in the book where it basically, I mean, it fluctuated a bit here and there, with the wars where they might inflate the currency for a while, but a dollar was pretty much a dollar from the 1790s until 1913. And, yeah. uh, and that, that was, was, that was trippy. Yeah. Right. I mean, could <laughs> you imagine a, if yeah, our go, dollar go was worth what it was a hundred years ago, we'd all be yeah. rich. Right? I mean, you yeah. Know I mean? Like, <laughs> it's, I'll tell you, that was an interesting chapter because, you know, I, I'd read, um, Ron Paul's in the Fed. Uh, you know, I had, I had read a, a couple other uh, books on the subject, and um, you know, I was. Uh, they all kept going back to 1913, and I don't know yeah. why. I thought I want to know what the dollar did before then, but I'm really glad that I did because whenever I started plotting it on my spreadsheet and seeing what it was doing, and then tying historical events to those dips and peaks right. uh i was just blown away at 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 how at 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 the story that it was telling and it's yeah. not something that anybody ever talks about and it's kind of important um you know for, and but you can see how you know even before the federal reserve whatever the the government's trying to stabilize the dollar to keep from raising in value that you know it's still not great for <laughs> for you know the consequences were actually still pretty bad yeah. not as bad as the federal reserve was but it's like wait a second so if the state injecting itself into this fluctuation uh had these negative results uh and and this one did and and this one did and, and this one over here also did maybe the state should just stop screwing around with it yeah, right. 
Well, it was actually really, uh, really uh, a little bit of a synchronicity because I've just finished this series on populism, the history of populism that I've been writing for my blog. And so I went back to, uh, you know, what is populism and what was the history of populism? And uh, it goes back to Andrew Jackson. It's all about it's all about this economic stuff. It's all about the power of the currency, the pole populist movement for basically from Andrew Jackson until the creation of the Fed was actually the, the end of populism and the beginning of progressivism. So this is what I was writing about. So I had actually been doing some, some research into like the, and something that you had in your book that I didn't know was that initially the, the, in, in the 1790s, the, the initial currency creation was bimetal, right? It was gold and silver backed. Yeah. And then, uh, there was the first bank of the United States. Then Andrew Jackson didn't want to, didn't want to recharter the second bank of the United States. And so the populist movement is basically the starts with Andrew Jackson and his fight because they didn't want to centralize the creation of the currency because they argued it's a power play. The rich people are going to control the currency and then they're going to make money for themselves. You know, I mean, like after that we're done, right. We're toast. So, so Andrew Jackson did not, um, did not uh, uh, allow the, the bank to be rechartered. And we went into the wildcat phase uh, yep. The wildcat banking phase that you talk about a bit in the book, but then uh, the greenback was printed for the Civil War, and that yep, caused and inflation. And then that was what the, the ultimately drove the populist movement in the 1770s and 1780s because they were trying to fight back on this this inflation. Uh, all the greenbacks started to get recalled, and then the the value of the dollar was going all over the place. And so they were arguing for bimetallism again. Yeah. They wanted to go back to that bimetallism. And there was this a, a big uh, heart of a cross of gold speech. Uh, that's kind of the famous populist speech. Anyway, I can go into it. But it was just fascinating that I had actually been looking into the history of that that period and what was going on with the US dollar. And then you actually had the valuations in your book about what the dollar's <laughs> value was over that period of time. And it was like, yeah. Um, but the fact that ultimately, even though what we're taught is during the wildcat banking period, it was crazy and, you know, people could just print money or during that, that period after the civil war, there were all these crashes and it was unstable. And that's why we're taught we needed the federal reserve. But even throughout all of that, the dollar was worth about a dollar, you know, maybe sometimes (laughs) 80 cents, maybe sometimes a buck 20, but it pretty much always averaged out. Now that same dollar is worth about four cents. (laughs) Thank you, Federal Reserve, for stabilizing our currency. Right. they said that the mission was to stabilize the currency. They didn't tell you where they were going to stabilize it at. They're going to stabilize it at zero. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You know, and then another thing, I mean, you really have the numbers in that chapter, but it was something like $478 billion a year now getting spent on the interest payments on the debt. I've often tried to wonder, and this is why Ron Paul wanted to audit the Fed. And the, the initial Tea Party movement, even people like to think of it as a far right Republican movement. But initially, it was a, basically a populist movement that just wanted to audit the Fed, <laughs> you know, like, let's look at this thing, because we don't know how I don't think how many tre- how much how many treasury bonds they own and how much of that 478 billion a year in interest payments, they they actually get paid <laughs> for the treasuries that they're allowed to just print up basically and say, you know, Oh, here and lend, lend the money back out to the government. Um, Yeah. 
And what I really hope to convey with that chapter, I mean, because the Fed is not an easy topic. I mean, just no matter right. how you slice it, I've really tried hard to make sure that it was explained uh, at a level that that anybody who doesn't know could understand, while also not sounding condescending about sure. it. Sure. You know, because I, I didn't want it to sound like I'm talking down to them. Uh, I it really strove to to make sure that it was it was focused on educating anybody that doesn't know how the fed operates on you know the basics of the federal reserve system um and i was hoping and i'm hoping that this chapter at at a minimum will open people's eyes and say okay this is there is something wrong with the fact that you have this private institution that gets that essentially has more power than the federal government even does because they get to say, "Hey, print more treasury notes," mm-hmm. um, and and have this massive control over your own property. You know, you, the, the, the news now is experts are baffled at where this hyperinflation is coming from, and it's like, uh, no, I know. anybody with half a brain that knows how the Federal Reserve operates was not surprised by this. The only thing I was surprised about is how long it took to actually start inflating. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so funny because the Austrian guys have always been calling this. They called it before the 2008 crash. It's like, so you got to stop this guy. It's going to be a disaster. And then whenever the disaster happens, everybody's like, well, you have no idea how this happened. <laughs> Yeah, those are your yeah. experts. Yeah, um, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> maybe you should get new experts. If your experts <laughs> never understand how this happened, yeah. uh, you don't have very good experts. Well, you know, I mean, I I hate to say it, but I think the whole system is so rigged. The reason why people aren't taught this economics is because they don't want people to know how the Fed works. Because if people did know how the Fed works, then, you know, there'd be a revolution. So. Yeah. People would, uh, at a minimum, people would start asking serious questions. You yeah. know, not you know, outside of the superfluous back and forth on social media, people would start asking questions to the their elected officials, pointed questions about the Federal Reserve System. Yeah, and uh, you know, it is, it. I mean. Uh, the title of the chapter says it all. It is the greatest heist in human history. Uh, it 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 is so egregious. And how it was instituted is just beyond me. I like even as I was re- researching the history of the actual bill and how it came to be and the semantics that they argued over. Yeah, I'm I'm just still like, who thought this was actually a good idea to vote for it? I mean, I know Woodrow Wilson was kind of a you know an egotist and a you know an academic pompous person that really just wanted con- as much control as he you know could so his signature i can explain but you have a you know both chambers of congress that are arguing back and forth over where the power should lay and how long the charter should be for and, and how that should be structured and what control it has over the actual monetary system yeah no point no, does anybody ever think you know this might uh actually you know i take that back uh, the congressman Simon Fest said, "Yeah, this is probably going to end the gold standard, and we're going to, you know, end up end up with hyperinflation." And then he votes for it, like <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Okay, kind of makes me wonder what dirt they had on him to get him to vote for it. But well, whatever. right, I know. Have Have you done the uh, the creature from Jekyll Island? 
the I have I have not. It's it's on my list. Yep, you got to check that one out. You'll love that book. It's classic, and it explains a lot of the kind of behind the scenes. That of course the very wealthy, the banking class. You know, they wanted to they wanted the Fed big time. I mean, it gave oh, of them, course, it gave them control, uh, and so there was definitely a lot of of the underhanded, um, you know real politics going on in the background that got that thing forced through. And I think they even what the vote was like on December 23rd, it was right around Christmas time. I mean, they, you yep. know, they, they pulled all the shenanigans to get the federal reserve passed um, without really yep. having the due process that if it had seen the light of day, I don't think anyone would have gone for it. And I think even Woodrow Wilson uh, you know, a decade or so later, it had to admit, like, my God, <laughs> I just, you know, I gave the kind. He said the quote is something like, "I gave the country over to, you know, the groups of powerful people now who control everything behind the scenes because they control the money supply." I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and then and then Congress twenty years later um, amended the Federal Reserve Act to make the charter indefinite and. Uh, there you go. Man, yeah, that's all she wrote. <laughs> we don't even debate it, and they can't even be audited. I mean, that's what's so absolutely insane. I mean, really, if people, uh, it's it's. I've called it for a long time the biggest issue in politics that nobody ever talks about. I mean, it's the number one. If we if we changed this facet of money creation, I've even done some. I've done some interviews with. Uh, um, people involved in the public banking movement, like just to have a public bank so that at least the government is the one printing the money instead of the, <laughs> you know, the private banks behind, behind the curtain of the federal reserve. <laughs> um, and, uh, there are just way, way better systems of, of finance than, than this, this central banking system that we've got. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's an aberrant. And if people understood it, I mean, they're destroying, uh, our, the currency valuation of the average person. Um, and they're really skimming off the top with the interest rates and the fractional reserve system of, of everybody's, everybody's labor, you know, they're creating yeah. the currency out of debt creation. So it's just like, <laughs> Yeah. And and we're not even allowed to, they're not audited. So we don't know how much money they're raking in off the top of all of this. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, um, you know the, a lot of libertarians, they say that inflation is a, is a tax. It's yeah. a hidden tax. And, and it's true, but that's only half the story. Inflation is a tax of the worst kind because, and I, I, I use this phrase uh, loosely, at least with you know your regular theft and extortion uh you know the state is taking that property and using it for something else inflation nobody is actually taking the physical you know property from you they're just devaluating and nobody benefits from it yeah nobody benefits from it and it it's so it's it's so sinful in my mind like i don't know another term for it right it's so egregiously sinful that it's it, it, like it, if somebody were to commit a murder and you ask them why and they gave you a reason even as superfluous as because i felt like it okay you have a reason you have you have a motive you have uh some sort of uh rationale as irrational as that is this is i am destroying your property and i am not even benefiting from doing so yeah i well, am personally not gaining i mean theoretically when they make the money you know they get to spend it at its present value 
So it, it that's where I think that's where they get the benefit is that they get to create the money and then spend it. And then it's, you know, it's, it has the current value. And then as it enters into the market and the dollar gets devalued because of the, because of the supply uh, expansion, the rest of us end up losing value over time, but they get that initial boost of the ability to be able to spend the money that they create. They also get the ability to create the money. So it's counterfeiting. <laughs> yeah. And um, what short sightedness that is, if, that, well, if that's the sure. rationale, I mean, golly. I mean, it, it does. It's not like we're talking about generations here that before it get it gets affected. We're talking like a year at most, right? right. It's it that is, that is a level of short sightedness that uh, I can't even really comprehend. Yeah, I mean, you have to wonder. I mean, at this point, I really view essentially this. I mean, the the banking class is almost like you've got the banking class, and then you've got the rest of us because these central bankers, the the families, or the people that control that wealth it's so vast um that money might not even be an issue for them anymore you know they they're they're so wealthy i think i mean i look at it in terms of old money and generational wealth the the families that have been involved in this kind of wealth creation over a long period of time um i have a feeling that there's so much wealth that they've had control over for for quite some time that uh the money isn't even a thing for them anymore. It's more about, it's just almost more about the power, you know, yeah. that they can accrue. Yeah. yeah. And, and you're probably right. Um, power it's, is, is, is very tempting. Yeah. Um, honestly, one of my, one of my favorite quotes from a TV show ever came from uh, house of cards. And it, it's when Kevin Spacey is in his little soliloquy describing the difference between money and power and how uh, you know money is the McMansion in, in Sarasota that crumbles after ten years, but power is the stone structure that that stands for something. Right. And ever since I've heard that, I'm like, man, that is that is so true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think that show was a little close to home. Actually, it was probably pretty accurate in terms. It of, probably uh, was, and it's, how things yeah, really I mean, are. I really enjoyed the show, but God, I, I uh, Kevin Spacey just uh, I can't. Right, it sickens me now. It's like I cannot believe that. I mean, <laughs> I can because Hollywood's filled with uh, uh, pedophiles, oh, yeah. but whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um. But but that show was was uh, exceptional, and and I I would say probably fairly accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, so I mean, you just got to get to a place. Well, you know, to go back to the idea of of natural law, um. You, once you hold that natural law ideal, then you start to be able to look at the actual system and and see the corruption that's just so endemic in the whole system. I mean, it's not you know, it's not a it's it's not out there striving to uh, to conform to natural law, right? I mean, right. <laughs> these people could care less. They're they're pushing money around and they're they're uh, accruing as much power as they possibly can. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it, it, to have control over another individual or their property violates natural law. Yeah. It's, it's as simple as that. So, you know, if, if an entity exists that has the, the power and authority to manipulate the value of your property, 
that is a violation of your natural right to property because they are bringing you harm. It doesn't matter if they're gaining or, or not, um, but they are bringing you harm. So therefore, it violates natural law. Um, so the Federal Reserve instantly fits that criteria. Right. Um, you know, and your local appraisal district also does. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, the so power much, to tax. Yeah, right. property taxes. I was just gonna say. Yeah, well, I mean, the prop the, the power to tax in, in generally, right? Um, you know, you have the authority to demand a percentage, an arbitrary percentage, of uh, somebody's, you know, total cost at the point of sale, based off of their income level, based off of their property value, uh, or even just a flat fee for them to engage in a voluntary act, well, you have commanded you know, uh, dominance over them. So again, violates natural law, violates individual rights. Mm -hmm. um, and then this, you know, whenever you get into the, the subject of taxation, that's whenever you start to lose people. Well, how are you gonna? How are you, how are you gonna pay for the roads and the bridges and, sure. and the police and the fire department and um you know it's it's just gonna be anarchy. Well, that's the point. Well, it's gonna <laughs> be you know dead people in the streets and it's gonna it's gonna be bad. Uh, I just I just probably probably one of my go tos is okay. So let's say the government stopped existing tomorrow. Are you going to say, well, the government doesn't exist. I'm going to go start murdering people now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think so. And I, I think that you would be hard pressed to find anybody that would. I mean, I'm sure just based on statistics and the sheer volume of people we have in the world, you probably could find a handful. But they are going to be severely outnumbered by the people that understand that you don't go around murdering people. Yeah. If you are listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of The Shift with Doug McKinty. For access to the full feature-length versions of the podcast, go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just $6 a month. Access the full-length episodes in video form through rockfin.com by subscribing at the Shift with Doug McKinty landing page. For $9.99 a month, you gain access not only to The Shift, but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com backslash store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind, make the shift. Well, if you don't mind, before we wrap it up, I know it's getting to be about time, but I do want to ask you about the abortion question because it's always the hot button issue. And I was, um, I, I think uh, I heard in the in a previous interview that you did and in reading the book that you actually kind of changed your mind on this as you were as you were writing. And it, um, it's, it's such, I mean, you know, it's such a, a complex and difficult issue. Um, but would you describe your process and, and what your thought processes are about this one and, and how your views changed and why over the course of, of writing about this topic? Yeah. So that was actually, uh, that was, that was an interesting subject to research. Yeah. Uh, cause I was looking at gestational age. I was looking at, you know, when brain function starts happening, uh, when reflexes start developing things like that, you know, I, and I learned a lot from that research that ultimately all got deleted out of the book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> uh, because, because at the time I was writing all of this to say, this is when life starts. Therefore, this is when, uh, this unborn person has natural rights. And 
ultimately I realized that it didn't matter. And I know that sounds very crass and, mm -hmm. and abrasive. Um, I still firmly believe that life begins at conception. Um, and I would say that medically, uh, life would begin when uh, there is brain function and reflexes. But that said, it ultimately amounts, it boils down to property, property rights, property ownership in the form of your own body. And um, what, what, I, what I realized is that all of the arguments that I had been ignoring in the past, the my body, my choice, actually had credence. Yeah. Um, I, don't th I still don't think that my body, my choice uh, properly articulates it. I think that there's a very uh, – there's a huge flaw in the way that that, is, that point is made. Uh, but what I ultimately realized is whenever a person has full ownership over their individual self, then that means that they have full ownership over anything of themselves. And yes, they chose to have sex with somebody. And yes, that sexual encounter resulted in life being created. But because they have the right to their own bodies, they have the right to expel or um, uh, what's, what's, what's the uh, evict. That's, a, that's, the, that's the word. They mm -hmm. have the right to evict anything from their body. It just so happens that the only means of doing this results in the unborn child's death. And so the question must be asked, whose rights have uh, more bearing? Whose rights have more weight to them in this stage of, of, of this relationship between, um, uh, between uh, pregnant person and unborn child? And ultimately, it has to remain with the pregnant individual because of the fact that if they are forced to carry the child to term, then they, are, uh, they cannot claim that they have full ownership of self because they're being forced to do something that they do not wish to do. If there was a method to abort a pregnancy that did not result in the unborn child's death. And uh, it effectively eliminated the need for the antiquated, uh, eliminated the need for the antiquated method, which did result in the child's death. Then that version of aborting a pregnancy would be the only one that uh, would suffice, but that would take a lot to do, not only in science and technology to develop such a, such a method, but also you would have to find a way to eliminate the market demand for the antiquated version of abortion in order to effectively eliminate it, because then it's market pressures that are steering what is considered allowed. Um, so if both were to exist, both methods were to exist simultaneously, and they both had their share of the market, you can't say that the antiquated version violates rights either, because 
as the person who is pregnant with the property right of body, uh, they have the right to choose the methodology as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was an interesting journey to say the least. Such um, a tough question, actually. I mean, it, it really is. Um, and I uh, ultimately have to agree with you in that the woman has uh, the right to her own body. I mean, um, you use an analogy, which really makes a lot of sense to me. I hadn't quite thought about it exactly like this, but really, even if you're taking care of a disabled sibling or you have somebody at your house that, you know, a family member, an elder, maybe that, that, you know, they can't take care of themselves. Are you obligated to take care of them? And you can't, put that on somebody else. You can't force someone to take care of somebody else. If you feel compelled to help, you know, offer your services, become someone who would adopt a child, for example, or become someone who would help the elder. Um, but we just, you, we can't force people to take care of other people without then making them a slave to our own system in that way, without uh, abrogating their natural rights. Um, and as sad as it is, uh, I think it applies to this this issue as well. Um, and it's one of those cases, like as you discuss in the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, you can have your own moral opinion about it. And I and I, you know, I suspect that many, many people do. I mean, I do myself, frankly. Um, but I also know that I can't force somebody else to apply my version of morality to their own life uh, yeah. without you know, aggressing against their natural rights. So it is what it is. Yeah. And, you know, I, because of that, re that realization, uh, you know, you can't force morality, you can't force ethics. Um, and make no mistake, it is a question of morality and ethics, but you can't force those things. Yeah. Uh, but you also, because of the fact that natural law is being upheld in the case of an abortion, um, you also can't rightfully pass judgment either. Uh, and that's another thing that's important because, um, I mean, you're free to think whatever you want. Uh, you're free to chastise whoever you want for whatever you want. But I think from, from my own personal view, I can't, I can't negatively pass judgment on somebody for exercising something that is protected under natural law, mm -hmm. even, even if it is something that I consider tragic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've also, I've had this pragmatic um, argument about it as well, because how can you stop it anyway? It's a lot like the drug war, frankly. I mean, if people are going to do drugs, whether you make it illegal or not, I mean, it's, you know, it's something that's unenforceable. Um, and it, yeah. it tends to have more negative consequences, I think, because you are going against natural law when you do try to stop it on these moralistic grounds. Uh, you actually end up causing more problems uh, than you're solving, I think, um, because of this the arrogance issue that we were talking about. Because you're trying yeah. to impose something on nature that's not just not there. I mean, we have to. We sometimes we just have to realize that uh, life is what it is, you know, and natural law is what it is, and and uh, we have to be able to be okay with that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. And. Um... You know, it, it's uh, liberty is not beautiful in all of her features, as I say. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, I will absolutely defend anybody's right to uh, to their own to 
to have full body autonomy. Um, even if it's something that I personally disagree with. And, you know, that I think that we should all um, adopt that type of mindset for whenever it comes to these sorts of issues. Yeah. Well, sounds good, Derek. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks uh, for writing the book. This has been a great conversation. I hope people uh, have been able to learn from it. Um, and, uh, you know, just trying to continue to open more and more people's minds to the idea of, of what a truly free society could look like. So, uh, another good conversation about that. Do you want to let people know where they can find a copy of the book? Absolutely. Uh, and thank you very much for having me on. And this, this discussion has been phenomenal. I've, I've enjoyed every bit of this. Yeah, this me is, too. This is, this is wonderful. Um, the book is entitled The Liberty Solution. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. Just uh, type in The Liberty Solution. Um, it should be the first one that pops up. The cover is a... Um, uh, depicts the, the back of the Statue of Liberty uh, kind of uh, in the clouds, so to speak. It's a pretty dark-looking cover. Uh, it's by Derek R. Wills, and the uh, forward is by Walter Block, for those who, uh, who are fans of the, uh, the wonderful economist, uh, who is truly amazing. I, I, I enjoyed every second of uh, my interactions with him and I, I would like to meet him one day in person. Yeah. I haven't had a chance to. Oh yeah. Cause he wrote the forward for the book for you. Yeah. That was a score. That was a score. <laughs> that was uh, I was, I'm still, I am still blown away that, that he wrote the forward and I'm still blown away by the forward that he wrote. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, congratulations on that. And again, thanks for, thanks for the work that you're doing. And, you know, honestly, uh, both in that you uh, have a lot of the, the kind of classic arguments and a lot of those uh, um, primary sources in there, the John Locke and that, but also for uh, putting your own twists and your own critical thinking onto some of these and coming up with some interesting new ideas as well. So um, if people are listening and you're interested in understanding just a little bit more about uh, libertarianism uh, and anarcho-capitalism more specifically, um, then I strongly suggest you check this one out. It was a great read, uh, and I enjoyed having this conversation with Derek. I'll let people know that uh, I've been your host. This has been The Shift, and my name is Doug McKenty. I, uh, you can find my work at www.theshiftnow.com. I've been doing some writing as of late on Substack at The Populist Papers. So it's thepopulistpapers.substack.com where you can find all of my articles. And if you sign up on Substack, then I get the podcast out as well as my articles straight to your inbox. So that's been a pretty convenient way to go. Uh, if you don't go to the website and sign up for the newsletter, you can also find me, Doug McKenty on Facebook or at D McKenty on Twitter. So thanks everybody for listening. And thanks again, Derek, for your work and for coming on the show and having this great conversation. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Yep. Take care. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there was my interview with author of the Liberty Solution, Derek Wills. Uh, this is a continuation of a series that I've been working on. I've just been wanting to have more libertarian guests on for a long time. I was really trying to come up with some kind of a synthesis between the left and the right. And I'd often have a lot of left-wing guests, a lot of right-wing guests, uh, to try to figure out how we can work together. And over the course, uh, especially of COVID, uh, I really had to come to the conclusion that I think that there are some just serious fundamental issues with the progressive notions, uh, especially the identity politics that's been becoming prominent over the last uh, decade or so, 
Um, but even with the left-right paradigm in general, this uh, Hegelian dialectic and then the Marxist dialectic that follows it up, this basically defines uh, all political conversation, the Republicans versus the Democrats, which part, which thesis or antithesis are you participating in so that we can duke it out, right? We can have this argumentative battle uh, and then create ultimately the synthesis, which is at the next level up. I think a lot of you are familiar with how this dialectic has been used by the upper classes to uh, basically hurt us uh, through social engineering in whichever direction they want to go. They give you the thesis, they give you the antithesis, and then they come up with uh, the solution that's going to get us out of the problem. We're now seeing the, the new synthesis into communitarianism, uh, which is the political philosophy that's behind, of course, the Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So, so I just figured... We got to get away from this kind of thinking altogether, and I've been attracted for a long time myself to these fundamental libertarian ideas based on natural law. So natural law, as you just heard, um, at least in, in Western philosophy, is most uh, predominantly pushed forward by the 17th century philosopher John Locke, and Derek has a lot of direct quotes from John Locke's uh, treatises on government where he goes into detail about uh, how natural law theory works and what it is. Um, so I really appreciated that about this book. And the thing about natural law, again, this, this predates. This is the concepts that fueled uh, the American Revolution, right? Uh, and a little bit the French Revolution, although there was uh, Rousseau's ideas involved in the French Revolution kind of took it to the next level. Uh, and maybe was a precursor to what is now modern socialism or progressivism. But the John, the Lockean ideas based solely on natural law um, were all about setting up these inalienable rights that humans have even when they exist in the state of nature, even when they're not controlled um, by government or a part of, of government or culture or anything. If you live by yourself in the middle of the state of nature, what uh, abilities, capacities that you have as a completely free human being that when you come into culture and you come into the government, well, you still have these faculties and the government or thieves or criminals uh, should not be able to take these rights away from you. And that's the foundation of, of natural law theory. And I think that it really, uh, it, 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 it is... Um, I think there's a reason why the upper classes actually push this dialectic on us. They don't want us to know about natural law theory, right? <laughs> I mean, because natural law theory individuates you. Uh, it lets you know that you have a right to be who you are and that the government and the upper classes don't have a right to impose power over you um, when you haven't committed an actual crime, when you haven't broken a natural law. Um, so it delegitimizes the power of the authority, and it puts that authority back into the individual. Um, and I think it's just super important that more and more people start to realize that there is this alternative. There's this alternative based on the state of nature, based on natural law, that's talking about uh, harmonizing with natural processes. Uh, and this is uh, in, as opposed to uh, this dialectic that defines politics today. The dialectic, which, by the way, clearly gets us nowhere. So, um, you know, it's divide and conquer, and it's this social engineering tool um, that the elites uh, use to kind of hurt us in the direction that they want us to go. So, uh, so I'm happy to have Derek on. 
I was happy that inside his book, he really dives deep into natural law, and then he applies it rigorously. And this is another thing that I wanted to discuss, is that it seems like people who have these principles, once you take the principle of non-aggression and natural law, and you apply it rigorously across the board, um, then you start to realize that th there is no justification for another person to have authority over you. The only use of the only justifiable use of violence is in self-defense, self-defense against an authority that's trying to uh, break natural law and uh, deny you of your inalienable human rights, individual rights granted by the state of nature, right? So you start thinking like this, and you start to wonder, uh, why is there a state at all? And uh, so it was interesting, actually, that Derek started as thinking of himself as a libertarian, but as a minarchist. And by the time he got done, because he was applying this concept of natural law theory so rigorously across the board, he basically... Uh, stopped believing in the state altogether and now considers himself to be uh, anarcho-capitalist. So um, I, I think that that, uh, that process has happened to a lot of us, right? <laughs> and once you do, once you apply these principles, uh, then a lot of these other arguments go by the wayside. And I think that having this, having this principled view of the concept of natural law theory actually breaks the spell of a lot of what goes on with the, uh, the dominant narrative. Uh, a lot of us libertarian-leaning human beings uh, who really do apply these concepts of non-aggression and natural law uh, we start to it starts you start to be able to really see through what's going on with COVID. Like, what about these COVID mandates? What about these mask mandates? You start questioning. You start being skeptical, and then you start wanting to be uh, internally consistent. You know, use applying your critical thinking, being consistent. Derek over and over again says, "I got to be consistent to natural law in the book," and so. Even though I may not want to believe this, <laughs> this is this is where the logic takes me. Um, and so having these principles, it really individuates you and separates you out of the dominant narrative. It makes it much more difficult for you to be influenced by government propaganda. Again, all of the sophistry that's used, the scientism that's been used. Um, so... Uh, I was happy to have Derek on and really flush out this concept of natural law and the importance of using it in this in this principled way, um, because I think it really does open the mind. It it separates you again. That word individuating. I've seen a lot of people starting to use this uh, concept of a a big cult. Like government is a big cult. I saw a tweet today about a, a person that was an ex-progressive who was leaving the liberal mentality and saying to herself, I feel like I'm leaving a cult. I think there's some truth to that, that this whole uh, identity politics thing has taken people off track thinking that Politics has to do with your gender or the color of your skin or your sexual identity, uh, whereas natural law points to you are an individual who has individual rights, and naturally uh, it makes one quite wary of very wealthy people uh, that are involved in government and controlling government. Uh, and manipulating government for the favor of the upper classes. So it has a tendency to, to make it very clear. I mean, these are the arguments used by John Locke 
to argue against the feudal system and what was called the divine right of kings. Now we could call it the divine right of the billionaire class, right? <laughs> um, because clearly we have the same basic problems today that John Locke had four or five hundred years ago, where we have a very um, solidified oligarchy. Uh, and I'm afraid that identity politics has taken a lot of people out of that and made them think that power uh, has something to do with a person's skin tone as opposed to uh, the wealth <laughs> that they can throw around uh, and the control over the government and the functioning of government that allows them to accrue uh, way more wealth and power than they'd ever be able to accrue in a free society. So uh, I hope you appreciated this as much as I did. I recommend the book. You can check it out by Derek Wills on Amazon. Just look up The Liberty Solution and it'll pop up. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, and again, he does, he quotes straight from John Locke multiple times, and then he discusses natural law theory and applies it rigorously across the board to a lot of different topics uh, that he goes into detail on, uh, more practical topics like how, you know, are we going to have prisons in a free society? How, uh, how does currency get made? A lot of things uh, that people assume we have to have government to, to get these things to function. He says, no, actually, there's a lot of different ways uh, that we can accomplish these goals without having to use the violence of a centralized government. So again, The Liberty Solution on Amazon, highly recommend it. And I will just let you all know uh, that you've been listening to The Shift. My name is Doug McKinty, and you can find all of my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, I've been writing a lot about political philosophy myself. You can find my writings at uh, thepopulistpapers.substack.com. Um, and I've been going into detail. I just finished a three-part series on populism talking about, let's just, you know, again, let's just ditch the left-right paradigm and have a populist movement based on the, the, the real class conflict that's going on. Get out of the left-right paradigm, ditch the identity politics, focus on the class issue and decentralizing power. Make it really simple. I'm so sick of people arguing about politics. Stop the arguing. Unify. We've got the numbers. We can make it work. Um, and these concepts like natural law that Derek uh, talks about in his book um, can really help us to make that leap, to get out of this paradigm and into a new one that can function way better for the rest of us. So uh, again, you can check that out at the Populist Papers on Substack. You can find all my writings there um, and my writing on populism. All right. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Um, and uh, I'll be back again next week. <laughs> you guys have a good one. Take care. Bye.